Hey, it's Elahe. I just wanted to drop you a quick note to say hello and also introduce you to an amazing new guest host you'll hear over the next few weeks. His name is Anahad O'Connor, and he's a columnist for The Post's Wellbeing Desk. I'm so excited to welcome him to the show, hear his questions, and the stories he's interested in chasing. You'll still be hearing from me and our other great colleagues, but for now, I'll let Anahad take it from here. For as long as he could remember, Josh Gondelman dreamed of being an actor. When I was a kid, I would act in school plays, like in high school, and I would write for the school variety show, and uh, and that was always a lot of fun, but I would act in the plays too, and I remember my my late grandmother said to me once after seeing me in a play, you're really more of a writer than an actor. And that was kind of a hint. (laughs) Years later, he did become a writer for television. I wrote for four seasons for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver on HBO. And I was a... um, I was a writer and producer and eventually the head writer of Jesus and Marrow on Showtime. And those were like, that was my big employment. I did some like consulting work on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but like the bulk of my like staff writing and like writer producer work was has been in late night. But writing is on pause for now, for Josh and more than 11,000 other television and film writers. This week... A lot of TV and film writers have been out on the picket lines, specifically in New York and Los Angeles. The New York, we, I was on the, the line chanting for like three hours and, do, and doing a lot of interviews. But like it was real, there was like real solidarity and real enthusiasm, I think, out on the picket line. The Writers Guild of America was in contract negotiations with the organization that represents production companies. The talks had been going on for weeks. It boils down to this. Writers say they want better pay and better working conditions. Big studios were saying these demands are unreasonable, which is why union writers overwhelmingly agreed to a strike. The strike is an effort to say, like, we are important to this process. We're important to entertainment to what goes on TV, what goes on movie screens, and and we're going to prove that we're val- valuable and we're not going to let you treat us like we're, we're not. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Anahad O'Connor. It's Thursday, May 4th. Today, we're breaking down the writer's strike with style reporter Anne Brannigan. It's a high-stakes standoff. The last time writers went on strike, it disrupted television for months and cost the industry an estimated $2 billion. We'll get into this new battle royale and what that means for viewers and for thousands of writers just like Josh. So, Anne, you've been following these negotiations for a while now. Can you tell me how this all got started? Why exactly are writers striking? So this started because their contract, which was last renewed in 2019, has expired. It expired on May 1st. And for the last couple of months, they've been negotiating, trying to reach a deal. Now, the writer's side is basically that they want pretty big changes to the way that they're compensated. So even though we're in an era of peak TV, you know, we have much more entertainment options, much more content than ever before. 
They say it's actually much harder to make a living now than it was 15 years ago. So what are some of the specifics of what the writers who are striking are trying to get out of these negotiations? So the core of this is pay, you know, how much they, they're paid, how often they're paid, and mobility. So how can they progress in their careers? So what the WGA is looking for is a minimum number of staffing in writers' rooms and that that duration of employment lasts a specific amount of time. They see this as really important to improving writers' welfare, especially since, you know, the future of streaming right now looks a bit uncertain. I've also heard that there are other specific demands from writers, like about residuals. What exactly are those, and what else are writers trying to negotiate for? So residuals are what a writer may get paid, you know, if there is a rerun of their show. Now, this was a lot simpler back in sort of like the broadcast TV days where, you know, you have a show like Seinfeld, it runs for nine seasons, and then it's syndicated, which means it basically runs reruns. And so a writer would get residuals from the episodes that were replayed. This looks very different in the era of streaming. Residuals are much, much lower. So for example, we have one writer, uh, Kyra Jones, who tweeted recently that the residuals they got for their first show, which was on broadcast, was around $12,000. And the residuals they got for a show that was streaming only was something around $4. When the Post talked to comedian Josh Gondelman, he highlighted this problem with residuals. This year, I have not worked, right? I haven't been on a a show working in any real capacity since October. Because Showtime, when I worked for Jesus and Mero, because Showtime is so slow getting their residual checks out, they really push it to the very end of the window they were allowed to. I made probably... Ten or twelve thousand dollars in residuals from work I did last year, and that's really helped. That's really been financially helpful this year. But yeah, that. So I, if Jesus and Mero had been on just a streaming service, that money, that like twelve thousand dollars that has been paying my rent this calendar year, would have been probably three hundred bucks. So writers are reporting that there's a really huge substantive kind of difference between you know, residuals of the broadcast TV era versus residuals that they're seeing now. And they're also much more aware of how future technologies could also impact the way they work and how they make a living. So, for example, on the list of Writers Guild proposals are they want to have some protections in place so that the use of AI doesn't end up taking away jobs from them. A lot of the fear right now is, you know, is mostly speculative. But it's rooted in this very real concern that they have about the ways that studios and execs have tried to trim down costs by trimming down writers' rooms. So we spoke to Dan Perlman, who is the star, creator, and writer of the comedy series Flatbush Misdemeanors. AI only knows what um, it is sort of fed intelligence-wise. So it's being fed, it'll be fed all of this human work and then just sort of like, trudge out some sort of templated version. They're just going to say, give me a rom-com with a a Hemsworth in space. And then I'm sure, you know, chat GBT or whatever will spit out some totally like 
fine version of that down the line. And so the concern is that will a producer, will an exec try to take a six-person writer's room down to two with the use of AI or something to that extent. And so it's really speculative at this moment in time, but it's based on sort of these wider trends of seeing um, writer's rooms kind of chipped away in order to save on costs. What other cost-cutting measures are studios implementing? What we're seeing now in the era of streaming is that you have shows that run much fewer episodes. So for example, if you take a look at, say, The Crown or, you know, a prestige show on Netflix or HBO, those will run typically around maybe 10 to 12 episodes. And so that means there's less opportunities to get paid. And then you also consider that you're seeing a lot more limited series So series that will only run for maybe one or two seasons, maybe three seasons versus, say, Seinfeld, which ran for nine seasons. And so that's a really big difference in stability because once your job runs out on one show, you have to either wait for the next season or you have to find other work. And so writers are saying that basically they have to be searching for work three to four times a year just to make ends meet. So a practice that has been really, really controversial and that I'm sure a lot of viewers are familiar with is that you've had streaming platforms take entire shows off their platform. So one example of this would be Love Life on HBO Max, you know, soon to be rebranded as Max. You know, and this has happened on other platforms where entire shows will just be taken off so that they're no longer available for viewing. Now, the reason why a company might do this is that It essentially works as a tax write-off or a tax write-down. So another kind of big example for the last couple of years, from the last couple of years, is Batgirl, where here's this big DC movie that, you know, costs millions of dollars to make, and that is pretty much done. But they take it off the platform before it ever aired because it was more valuable to them to write it off or write it down than to use it as content. And then on top of that, of course, they're saving money on paying out residuals. So if you're a writer or an actor or anybody working on those productions, it's quite painful to see that, you know, the thing that you worked on for for weeks, for months, basically disappears and you don't really have any record of it. And of course, no opportunity to make any kind of money off of it. Now, who represents the production companies and what are they saying about these demands? So these companies are represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represent both the studios and the networks or, you know, the streaming platforms. And they're basically saying that they don't find some of the core demands from the writers to be reasonable. So when the strike kicked off, um, they said that they had offered, you know, quote, generous increases in compensation but that the primary sticking points were the demands that there be a fixed number of writers for a show and for a fixed amount of time. And so they say they're open to negotiations, but it seems like that is something that they might not be willing to move very far on. Now, the bigger picture here is that they're arguing that 
the future of streaming is still pretty uncertain. You're seeing a lot of crowding in that market, and they're still trying to figure out the best way to go forward and to make money. Now, streaming services are profitable. There's no doubt about that. But the issue that the studios will point to is that, you know, for Netflix, Netflix subscribers are not growing year over year the way that they used to. And that's a big concern, especially if you're thinking about shareholder value. Now, for the viewers out there, people who are watching shows like Succession and Ted Lasso, what's going to happen to these shows? Are they suddenly going to go dark? How is this strike going to affect TV and movie projects right now? So that answer depends pretty much entirely on how long the strike lasts, right? So, you know, our biggest cue is basically what happened in 2007, which is the last time there was a writer's strike. What we saw then and what we're going to see now is late night shows are pretty much sort of immediately affected. Um, A lot of them have announced that they will go dark this week and run reruns, you know, Daytime sort of soap operas are also going to have to decide pretty much immediately what they're going to do, whether they're going to run reruns or whether they're going to going to try what some of them did last time, which was hire non-union writers to finish to finish their episodes. In terms of succession, of course, <laughs> succession, we're going to see the finale. Succession will be fine. Mm-hmm. We probably won't see delays on other shows like Abbott Elementary, for example, unless the strike kind of goes on for much longer, in which case we might see sort of the false slate getting pushed back. There's a lot more lead time for the streaming platforms. And mm-hmm. so, for example, Netflix said that, you know, it's pretty confident that they'll continue to have a robust slate of content pretty much through the end of the year. So where we could see a bigger impact is for films and TV shows that are in production or were going to be in production um, and set to be released, say, in 2024, 2025. Now, I saw that uh, Seth Meyers, for example, came out in support of the strike and showed uh, some solidarity with the writers, which made sense to me because he is a former writer himself um, on SNL. Um, Are we seeing a lot of Solidarity from other television hosts or stars and celebrities? Are they siding with the writers, for example? Right. So, so far, the celebrities, the actors, and, you know, TV shows who have spoken out have been pretty vocal in their support of the writers. And this is also something that we saw back in 2007 where, this you know, members of the Screen Actors Guild seem to be very much in support of their you know, writer colleagues. So Jimmy Fallon, for example, is another person who voiced his support for his writers. Yeah, I need I need my writers. I need them real bad. Yeah, I got no show without my writers. We saw Amanda Seyfried at the Met Gala red carpet. No, it's just like, I don't get, I'm not in the rooms. I, I don't get what the problem is. Like we should, everything changed with streaming and everybody needs to be compensated for their work showing support for her writer friends. And so something that we might see should the strike drag on is uh, actors who refuse to cross the picket line. After the break, 
what we can learn from the last writer's strike in 2007. We'll be right back. So the last big writer's strike was back in 2007. What were the writers specifically striking for back then? Back in 2007, the core issue was streaming and how it might affect their pay. So at the time, streaming is kind of just this sort of idea. In fact, they really refer to it more as content on the internet. And it wasn't clear for many people, including among the guild themselves, how it might impact their jobs. And so what they were fighting for in 2007 was something that we might understand as jurisdiction, which is do they even have the right to claim any kind of money from their work when it's used on the internet? And that was a really big question mark at the time. Our primary focus is internet and new media. We want to get a fair deal on that. We're not getting any kind of a deal at the moment, and we need to get part of that action. And what the studios had argued is that they don't even know if the internet could be profitable for them. And as we know now, (laughs) pretty much all the content that exists, most of it can be found on the internet or through, you know, as we know them now, streaming platforms. We're saying that when when they make money, we make money. When you, the studios and the networks make money, we make money. And that's what we we want to to have happen here. So that strike lasted for 100 days. A number of shows were impacted. Some were cut short, you know, such as Friday Night Lights, which my colleague Sonia Rao did a really great piece on, showing just how the strike completely derailed the second season of that show. Um, But we also saw the impact on Heroes and Lost, which were both really popular shows at the time. So you had shows who either had to end end their seasons early or um, the, the seasons were delayed. At the same time, you're seeing studios and networks having to scramble for content and filling that up with reality TV shows. Now, the most famous example of this might be The Apprentice, which, you know, during that 2007-2008 run, apparently that show was (laughs) on its way out, but then they brought it back with The Celebrity Apprentice. And as you know, the star of that show, Donald Trump, basically gets the second wind and the second sort of crack at stardom. Ultimately, the studios kind of gave in in the sense that, you know, there was a decision that there would be residuals for their work, um, far less than it is, you know, compared to broadcast TV or compared to their work landing in theaters. But those forms of compensation do exist. So in many ways, we can look at this strike as a continuation of those battles where now we've seen how much streaming has changed the way Hollywood works, and writers want to be able to keep up with those changes. Is there a real fear here that 
there's a deterioration of the average Hollywood writer's ability to make a living nowadays. Absolutely. And, you know, to bring sort of one more comparison between 2007 and now, both of these are fights that writers see as existential, as crucial to the very heart of whether they can make a career in this field. You see more writers being paid at the minimum levels at their job. So one stat that the Guild has shared is that nearly half of all screenwriters are making the minimum at their job, whereas, say, in 2013, so about 10 years ago, the number of folks who were making the minimum was just a third. So we're seeing some pretty big, you know, changes in the rate at which people are paid. But with the way that streaming could potentially change in the future, a lot of folks are worried that that they won't be able to make a living doing this kind of work, which is still very profitable. So I spoke to one writer, Brittany Nichols, who works on Abbott Elementary now as a story editor. But, you know, she recalls sort of like her days coming up when she was still new. And these aren't unusual stories, right? She talks about having to work several other jobs uh, just to sustain her writing career. Um, She didn't come to Hollywood with a car, right, as a, as a young 20-something. I would go do, like, marketing consulting research. I was doing, like, background extra work mm-hmm. just to, you know, have enough money to take the bus to work when I, when I got a job. Like, my first writer's room was in Santa Monica, and I lived in Los Feliz at the time, and I didn't have a car. So it was, like, a two-hour commute to and from work, and... Again, it's sort of now this situation where I think if I started out now, I don't know that I would be able to rise the ranks the way that I did. But Brittany Nichols will be the first to acknowledge that her path is actually better than a lot of writers now because she was able to progress. The stability that people use to make decisions like getting a nicer car or saving to buy a house, you're you're unable to sort of do these markers of (laughs) adulthood, really, because you're so terrified that you're not going to be able to, to keep up because... Even though you are rising the ranks in terms of of title, that's not equating to making more money every year. Like we're making less money now than we were 10 years ago. And what we're seeing with a lot of young writers is that level of progression is not happening. So not only is the pay where you're at stagnant, but you're not even moving up in the same way that folks were before. And this is something that writers across the board are citing as a, as a major issue and why they're willing to, you know, to go on strike. And I do want to emphasize that going on strike is a scary thing, especially if you, like most writers, are probably living paycheck to paycheck or gig to gig. Um, you're giving up your work for however amount of time that you're striking. You might be losing momentum in your career. There might be deals in development that are shelved. And once you lose that momentum, it's hard to get it back. But these are the costs that they're willing to pay. Because for them, that cost 
is preferable to the way that the industry is, is running now. So where do we go from here? How long is this strike expected to last? That's the big question, right? The studios don't seem inclined to move. And so it's, it's really up in the air in terms of how long this will drag on. So, you know, back in 2007, there wasn't an agreement for 100 days. Now, certainly, I don't think anybody involved in the industry wants to see that delay go on that long. But as far as the studios are concerned, they say they've been preparing for this strike for months now. They've been operating under the assumption that there will be a strike. So at this moment, it doesn't seem like either side is willing to budge. Anne, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Anne Brannigan is a style reporter with The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Samantha Sherry. And for our listeners, I have a request. We're doing an episode on loneliness and the profound public health threat it poses. We want to hear from you. If you have a personal story you want to share, send a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com with your name and your story. I'm Anahat O'Connor. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.